bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of shelf indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. I wanna hear it. I wanna read it. I wanna bit of shelf indulgence. I Hello, hear and it. welcome to this week's episode of Shelf Indulgence, your microbrew radio weekly dose of everything bookish. And today, I've got a special show for you. I am joined today by Elaine Pritchard, local author of Labour of Love, The Orton and Spooner Story. Welcome, Elaine. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, uh, before we get into the book properly, tell us a little about yourself, Elaine. What, what is it that uh, you love about Burton and what, what do you normally do when you're not writing a book? Well, my background was as a newspaper journalist. I grew up in Burton. Um, and then my career took me all around the country, um, but I finished up back in Burton in the 1990s. My family had always lived here, and I just think it's a really, really special place. We've got some amazing scenery, and uh, the people are very special as well, and I've always been fascinated by history, and, and we've got some fabulous history and some fabulous untold stories. Yes, and your book looks at one of those untold and almost lost stories. So thank you for writing it just to keep the story from being lost. Um, tell me and explain to the listeners, what was it then that brought you to writing the Orton and Spooner story? How did, you, how did that journey begin? Well, it was back in 2003 when, despite being a Burton girl born and bred, I'd not heard of Orton and Spooner until 2003. When um, I was uh, at the brew house, would you believe, in an amateur production of Carousel, the Rogers and Hammerstein musical. And because I was a newspaper journalist, I volunteered to do a bit of PR. And somebody told me, um, there's a new book coming out about a firm in Burton that used to build carousels. I said, oh, that sounds really interesting. So I found out about it and I got to meet a lady called Paula Howell, whose late husband had written this book. and She'd had it published. We actually became really good friends. So that was when I found out about Orton and Spooner and the fairground rides and the talented people that worked with them. And um, Ever since then, I've, I've sort of badgered people about it quite a bit and said, oh, somebody ought to do something. And uh, one of the people I badgered was uh, Tilly Bancroft, who has done sculpture trails around the country. She did Burton Swans. And um, I, um, she asked me to help her with an artist pack, inspiration, things about Burton that artists might not know when they were doing swans. So, of course, one of the things I put in there was Orton and Spooner. And this was the first time Tilly had heard about it as well. So um, when she came to do a second sculpture trail, uh, two years later, she decided to do the Big Burton Carousel. And of course, I start again saying, but somebody ought to do something about Horton and Spooner. And eventually, last July, I decided that somebody had better be me. So I decided to write the book. And I'm so glad you did. Um Burton, obviously, we're famous for beer. We're famous. That's what our, our main industry is. But Burton has been famous for lots of other things, um, and they've they've kind of got lost a little bit in the times. People don't know about the textile industry that we had. People don't know so much about the mills. People don't know so much about 
the war effort that was made, the engineering that's happened in Burton. But here we've got something that's very special in um, the craftsmanship, the quality. It's it's very unique. There is really nothing that compares to making these carousels, is there? There isn't, and and it's it's got lost, as you say, that we were second only to King's Lynn. And there's an argument about whether we were first over King's Lynn, but Burton-on-Trent and King's Lynn were the two centres of production for fairground rides in the Victorian era and the Edwardian era. And they were a massive, massive thing in those days. If you think back to the entertainment that was available, the leisure pursuits people could do, travelling fairs were a massive importance to people and uh, as I say, Burton on Trent and Kings Lynn were the two centres of production, and and how Orton and Spooner built that business again. As as I unearthed more about the story, it was it was a real eye opener. Fantastic. Now the book is not just a story of the business either. It is a story about people. It, it goes into detail about the families and the people involved. And was that an emotional journey for yourself? It was, it was emotional and it was unexpected because having decided to get on and write this book, I had the intention of making sure it was out for October last year, which was when the Burton Carousel Trail was going to be rounded off with a charity auction in aid of Burton and District Mind. So I thought, well, if I get the book out for there, um, I can also raise some money for Burton and District Mind through it. Um, so when I start doing the research, um, I went on to Ancestry because obviously I'd done a little bit of family research myself there. So I realised that if I put in the dates of birth of Orton and Spooner, um, I might find some more information about them as people. What I wasn't expecting was to find Charles Spooner's great-grandson, um, who had done a massive amount of research um, and led me on to to find out all that I, I ended up being able to put in the book about the two families. Um, and it was very unexpected because, again, um, you, you, you hear about a company that is um, so successful in terms of the product it's building and designing. And it's easy to forget the, the stories of the people behind it. But thankfully, thanks to, to Ancestry and the way things are done online, this led me to this gentleman called Andrew Warwick Thompson, who was so generous in helping me with photographs. And it meant that the story of Orton and Spooner and as men has been told now for the first time. And, and to my surprise... Um, it, it means that the book's also found an audience with fairground enthusiasts who knew all about Orton and Spooner and the rides and the technical specifications but didn't know the stories of, of George Orton and Charles Spooner and when you find out the challenges they had and all that they overcame, uh, yes, it was it was very emotional. Yeah, I mean, two gentlemen that came from challenging beginnings yes very it, much so it certainly made a great amount of, of, of themselves and you know you look at um one of the things that for me was a real eye-opener was i didn't realize quite the amount of money that was involved in fairground ride production mm. um you know these these rides uh, I, I know that somewhere in the book one of the big rides they make is worth the equivalent in today's money of a million pounds yeah yeah and you think wow that's that's phenomenal. Yeah, because it was big business in a world where leisure opportunities were fairly limited. 
um, certainly until cinema came along, um, the fairground, the travelling fairs, that was that was a big part of entertainment and a, and a massive money-making business. So, yes, the, the amount of money they generated for the town that was then spent in the town, um, as their workforce expanded, they're employing lots of people, they're putting skills into the local population and, and really putting Burton-on-Trent on the map. Um, there was... Um, a ride they they used to promote the rides when they built new rides they'd put them up in the marketplace and there'd be an invitation to showmen from all over the country they'd come to Burton no doubt stay overnight um, and watch the rides in action as a as a sales technique with Orton and Spooner hoping and it usually did happen that they would put in orders for for rides for their own traveling show fairs and they were coming from Scotland Cornwall all over the country into Burton because we were producing the best fairground rides and the most innovative fairground rides. That was the other point. It was the innovation and the imagination and the creativity that these two men had. I um, I really enjoyed learning about that. And I enjoyed, you know, going on that journey of discovery with you because the way you the way you write, the way you tell the story, it does enable the reader to. To, to almost find it out in kind of the way that you did. Mm. Um, and that made it a really interesting read for me. Um, Wendy, uh, unfortunately, can't be with us today, but she has also read the book. And she's uh, she sent in a little re- review, which I'm going to read part of now. So uh, Wendy says, what a fan- fascinating read. I didn't know anything about them before reading the book. What a great piece of local history. The story was surprisingly complex and the lives of the men were not without huge challenges quite sad that they had to deal with the tragedies they did in their lives. Their craftsmanship was outstanding. Uh, sorry, it was astounding. The outside of the ghost train and the dragon cars and not without humour either, the Boer War general horses. The paintings, the ghost train scenes are beautiful and the engineering is impressive, but the carving is outstanding. Uh, as businessmen, they were real innovators, particularly their move to cinema, which we'll come to later. Uh, masterful marketeers to... Um, probably influenced engineering mart- engineer emerging marketing techniques before they had a name. The book is lovingly written, and congratulations, Lane. It was a pleasure to read. Now, Wendy has also included a couple of questions, so I'm going to put those to you now, uh, Elaine. Don't, don't want to put you on the spot too much, <laughs> but um, Wendy says, what was your favourite discovery when you were researching the book? It was actually the cinema connection, because I had no idea that they had had such a major role in the development of cinema in the town. Um, I knew about the fairground rides, but the cinema was um, a complete surprise to me that they'd run three of the biggest cinemas in the town and were responsible for the first talking picture to be shown in Burton-on-Trent as well. I'm curious. Are you curious? I'm curious about history, about Burton's history. About people, about the community. I'm curious about all these things and I like to talk about them on a microphone. Here I am, talking away. If you'd like to do the same, and if you're curious, why don't you come down, bring your curiosity to Microbrew Radio. Come on down and talk about everything you're curious about here on the show. Microbrew Radio, it's a place for the curious. And then 
Of the rides that you've researched, when you would like to know, do you have a favourite of their rides? Definitely the, what they called the scenic railways, which sort of sounds very leisurely, doesn't it? Yeah. It sounds like the sort of thing that you'd pootle around on um, with the children. But the scenic railways were quite fast. They were roundabouts, but they were huge roundabouts. Um, roundabout doesn't do them justice they would have big cars that would carry up to 16 people and a track that slightly undulated and would speed round at 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 great speed and was quite thrilling I would imagine at the time but the again the carving work um, was just absolutely amazing on these um, rides and again with typical the business acumen the Taunton and Spooner definitely had they got lots of um, recurring income from um, changing the cars on these rides for showmen as fashions changed because, again, um, the way the industry ran was people were always looking for the next novelty. So, you know, one year it might be dragons as the cars, the next year it might be dolphins. People always wanted something a bit different. The next time the fair came to town, they didn't want to ride exactly the same ride. So Orton and Spooner and their workforce were kept busy carving new carriages, new cars for these for these incredibly huge rides. Now, the, the final question she has for you is, do you think there are still undiscovered Orton and Spooner gems out there? Um, I think there must be. Um, they are getting thin on the ground, but it does still happen. Um, since, since writing the book, I've started um, a Facebook page um, to sort of share Orton and Spooner stories. And I'm regularly contacted there by people from all around the country who have an interest in them. And the other day, um, I was contacted by a lady in Wales who'd been able to find an Orton and Spooner, or rather a Spooner-carved horse in a local antiques dealer. And that that is an amazing find because people think that a lot of them um, have either been found and shipped out to millionaire collectors in, in America um, or sadly, because they were wood, um, they perished or were burnt when people didn't recognise their value. But yes, I'm, I'm sure there are some little gems out there. I, I live in hope, definitely. Fantastic. Now, the book's called Labour of Love, and I, I've got a suspicion that might be a bit of a double meaning there in the title, because certainly um, these men loved what they did. Uh, and worked for the love of their families. Definitely. But also, I know, and I'd like you to share with our listeners, um, just the quite intensive pip, uh, process of labour that you set yourself, the challenge you set with a, a self-imposed deadline. Yes, I did. I, I never <laughs> never seemed to make things easy for myself. As I say, it was July the 4th last year that I was sitting down with with Paula Howell and her daughter Kath, who I've I've stayed in touch with over the years, and I said, "Oh, let let's do a book. Um, let let's let's get on and do this, um, and let's get it out for October." So, again, having worked um, as a journalist and then as a freelance writer, I had connections um, in the publishing world, um, and spoke to. Um, a lady that I really wanted to do the book for me to to print it and uh, she said well we'll need it by the end of August so uh, that was that was the deadline I was set from July the 4th to August Um, and I did get a lot of help as I say I met very quickly made contact with Charles Spooner's great-grandson the Howell family put me on to a couple of 
um, fairground experts, one locally, one in Buckinghamshire, who were very, very helpful. Did a lot of research through um, the British newspaper archive online uh, and uh, it, it, it flew by. So, uh, yes, it, it, was, it was definitely a labour of love to, to hit that deadline I set myself um, and also to, to use the project to increase the amount of, of money that Orton and Spooner, if you like, have made for, for Burton and District Mind. And that was important to me. As more, the more I found out about the lives, particularly of Charles Spooner, and um, the challenges um, that he faced, Burton and District Mind seemed like such an appropriate cause to to raise that money for. Yes. So, in the book, you've got you've got several chapters that focus on different um, areas of the of the story. But for you, what what was the what was the most enjoyable part of? this story what putting it together and finding out which which chapter really for you was the the gem oh that's a good question um that's a very good question i think again it was the same when i was a journalist i enjoy the research but i do love the point at which right now i'm starting to write i know where i'm going with this um and and when you create that structure in your mind for how the story is going to unfold um, and the the chapters that come in I guess um, for me it was the chat I guess it was the chapter about Orton and Spooner and their families and being able to tell that story for the first time um, that was such an emotional story and to have the help and support of um, descendants of Charles Spooner um, and that was how we found out that the two families were linked by marriage as well, which was another surprise. Fantastic. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed the read. Um, I think there's such wonderful gems. And anyone anyone who's listening who thinks they know Burton history, and I do, you know, I pride myself on being fairly well read on my Burton history, but I learnt a lot through reading this book. Um, definitely a chapter of Burton history that was unknown to myself. Um, you've talked about the research. Now, I've done a fair bit of research into history myself. Now, it can be a dangerous territory because it's very easy to get lost down a rabbit hole when you're researching. So were there, were there avenues of the Warren that you, that you weren't expecting to become quite... So, or, or, or were there any bits that challenged you to not get waylaid and... Yeah, I think I think because of the self-imposed deadline, again, it was a bit like being a newspaper reporter, particularly in the early days, you know, when I, life's very different now with online news. But when I started, you know, you'd work on a, on a big evening paper that would have perhaps nine or ten deadlines during the day for different district editions, for different timed editions. And you've got to hit that deadline. It's no good sitting there and thinking, oh, the muse has not come upon me. I do not know what to write. You've got to write. You've just got to write. And you have got to hit that deadline because the paper's got to be printed. It's got to be on the streets. So I guess that discipline came to it. And again, knowing how my time was restricted, there were kind of avenues 
I had to decide not to wander down because I could have it, it's a project that could have could have taken me years you know I could have visited archives to look at information that isn't available online I was really sticking to online research and the contacts that I quickly made with the Spooner family and with a couple of fairground experts but I could have I could have spent years on it I could have um, and, and lots more information would have come out but it was just making that decision that um, there was a story to be told and and maybe it's something I'll go back and explore in more depth another time. Who knows? Well, that was something I was going to ask because I know for a fact that when you've started researching something, it can be very hard to walk away from mm. it. And um, I suppose, in a way, the Alton and Spooner story really has become a part of your life now. It has, and I think it always will be. And people contact me, you know, through Facebook or occasionally. I did a little exhibition at the Priory Centre last year and I was overwhelmed by the people that came, people whose families had worked for Orton and Spooner. Um, and it was really interesting. There was one, one lady that came and said when they were very young children, they used to get free cinema tickets every Saturday and they hadn't quite understood why they got free cinema tickets because their parents worked for Orton and Spooner. And, of course, you know, it was that, that cinema connection. And and information has come to me already that I didn't know when I did the book. Um, and and it's, just, it's just a fascinating world. Um, and I don't think um, it'll ever leave me and I won't ever leave it. I shall forever be finding out more about Orton and Spooner and, and some of the work that they produced. So we can probably expect uh, an updated or expanded edition or a se- or a sequel. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't <laughs> rule it out. But I've also, I, I guess, again, I guess the the theatre background in me. You know, there's there's a bit of me that would love to see it on stage. Might that be a possibility? Um, I'm sure there's enough potential in the town. Yeah, I, I I think it would it would be nice to 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 put them on stage and and hear them speak again, wouldn't it? Yeah. Really. Now, when you put a book like this together, pictures are a essential part of a book because, particularly mm. with a non-fiction, um, and you are our first non-fiction uh, local author. What we've got here is we've got a historical record and in as much as when telling a fictional story, the words that we can weave together to create those pictures are magical, there's no substitute for a photograph in a historical book. So how hard was that process? Because I know from things I've put together, choosing the right picture or finding the correct image to show what you want to show can take hours and hours. Yeah. Whittling it down to the pictures that are in the book was the hardest thing, definitely. Um, I, again, another amazing stroke of good fortune I had was um, the help and cooperation of the National Fairground and Circus Archive, which is based at Sheffield University. They knew of Orton and Spooner, Um, intimately as they have a massive collection of images and a massive collection of actual blueprints and designs for rides um, which they have um, inherited down the years and they had um, recently just before I 
uh, did started on the book, they had held an exhibition in Sheffield where they'd showcased this because they'd been able to use some funding to preserve a lot of this Orton and Spooner collection. So when they heard that it was a, a book where all the proceeds, all the profits were going to charity, they were very generous in saying, just go through the collection online, tell us which ones you want, and we'll send you high-resolution copies. Well, you talk about a treasure trove. It was just incredible. And again, I just had to be so disciplined to just knuckle down and and make those choices. And I know lots of people would have gone through the same photos and might have chosen different ones to me. Um, but they they are just stunning. And and that's something anybody can enjoy. You know, that digital archive is all online. Um, low resolution pictures so that that's something that anybody listening to this can do and can see the whole suite of photographs that I, I got to choose from and then also family photographs that were lent to me by the the Spooner family and um, some images that um, my fairground experts who helped me with the research had got as well so I was really spoiled for choice and and as you say it is it is a massive part of the book I think to see this this amazing work that these these guys produced. Oh, yeah, I mean, the the craftsmanship is phenomenal. Mm. I'd like to touch for a moment then on a bit of the story itself and a bit of the geography of the town that is related to the book so that the listeners can perhaps, you know, it will help them picture. So, geographically speaking, I suppose the Autumn Spina story starts really at the Swan, doesn't it? It does, yes. That was where Charles Spooner grew up and uh, he started his first business in the yard behind what was then the, the Swan Hotel, which is now apartments at the end of of the road. Um, George Orton, who was um, considerably older, he'd been running a wheelwright shop in Midway for um, a gentleman that he'd been an apprentice to but having married and started a family, he took the leap of faith to move into Burton. He moved on to Waterloo Street and began doing very, very small jobs for people, um, repairing carts and, and, and sort of wheelwright and joinery jobs. And and this, oh, this was another thrill, actually. I got to spend a morning at the, what was then the National Brewery Centre Archives, which had um, some of George Orton's workbooks from the 1880s where he'd meticulously written down all these little jobs he was doing when he was just working for himself, charging threepence for this and sixpence for that. And in his handwriting, that was actually the most emotional I ever got because I'm sitting looking at this book and looking at George Orton's handwriting and thinking, I know how this story ends. You know, this guy that's sitting here, did he ever think how big his business was going to be he was working so hard to make a living to support his his family as young children did he did he always have that drive that he knew where he was going or when he was doing those little jobs for threepence and sixpence did he really you know not know what was going to happen um so that was incredibly emotional and uh and yes so he started there and then he moved to princess street 
and then he bought the house next door so that he could have a house and he could have a factory. And Charles Spooner, meanwhile, had moved to the house on Meadow Road, which you can still see, the three-storey one, and had the workshop behind it. And the interesting thing is that although people call them Orton and Spooner all the time, they kept the two businesses separate until a year after George Orton died. All the time George Orton was alive, you had two separate business. You had George Orton and you had Charles Spooner regularly working together but also doing doing other stuff as well. Fascinating. Um, so we've got these two men who, like you say, they, they've, they've really built themselves a small empire, really. Mm. They, they made their names in being the the pinnacle of what they did. Um, And they are admired by, like you said, fairground experts, but also what they took was a real sense of civic pride Mm. in the town. And, I mean, one of the things that I found really touching was that they they were the first people that gave um, free admission to pensioners to the the, um, cinema. Yeah. Matinee performances, and I, I loved that little detail. I thought, that's, you know, you, I think you get the measure of a man when you can see, you know, he, he'll put his hand in his own pocket to look after people. Mm. Um, and then finding out, you know, about the the free tickets for the children, mm. for the cinema, and, you know, they really looked after their workforce, didn't they? They did, and they looked after the town, you're right. Um, they always understood the value of keeping economic activity within the town, not outsourcing it unless they had to. Um, again, at the at the National Brewery Centre, they had stacks of early invoices, and wherever possible, they were doing that business with local timber merchants, um, the only thing that regularly went outside was gold leaf. They used to go to the jewellery quarter in Birmingham, which was where they sourced gold leaf, which they used on all the rides. Um, but they always, and they talked about this later on when they were doing the cinema projects, they talked about the importance of providing this this sort of circularity of economic activity, they understood that Burton as a town would thrive and the people within it would thrive if you do business with other other businesses in the town and you keep people in work and, and you keep people thriving. And again, you're right, there's lots of little touches whenever they were showing off a new ride in the marketplace. They would charge people for the ride, but the money would all go to the local hospital. And again, a a rabbit hole I didn't get to pursue, but I did find reference to them creating scenery for local amateur shows and things like that. Again, really community-minded, and it just felt like if they could do anything to help people, they would, as well as building a massively successful business at the same time. So the two can go hand in hand. Yeah, and I I really, um, one of the little offshoots I found in my own research, because I did a little bit, I've I've been doing some work myself on Burton history, and I I found a YouTube clip of uh, an elderly lady talking about when she was little, remembering being invited to go and test drive (laughs) some of the rides... And they were told that rough play was absolutely essential. Really give it something, kids, because we want to make sure it's sturdy. And, you know, that kind of community spirit of, well, we want to test drive it, let's get the local kids in. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that make, it fills your heart, doesn't it? Mm, definitely, definitely. Very special people. Quick. 
you must listen to Microbrew Radio, and there's only one way. Well, actually, there are three ways. It's microbrewradio.com. You can listen on there. Or we have an app, which is available on the App Store and the Google Play Store. Get it now. And of course, there's Alexa. Simply say, launch Microbrew Radio. Do it now. It's the only way you'll survive. Here on Microbrew Radio. So, if our readers, uh, our listeners who are readers, want to buy your book, Elaine, where can they find it? So, you can find it quite easily on Amazon. If you search Labour of Love, the Orton and Spooner story, it should pop up. Um, That's as a paperback. It's not a download. I've not done it as a download because I feel that the images really need to be shown in in print form. Um, uh, Ebooks are, are absolutely great, and I'm a big fan. But it's not always very easy to to show off a book that's that's got as many photos as this in. And some of these are photos that haven't been in books before. So um, you can buy it on Amazon um, as a paperback book. Just order it on there. Superb, and I would encourage people to do so. Not only because it's a great story, but also, like you said, it is a book where all profits mm-hmm. are still going to charity. Now, I. I'm, we chatted briefly before the um, the program started the recording today, and you were telling me that you've had some international success since selling Amazon. Yes, yes, it has gone to America and it's gone to Germany um, because they there are some enormous Orton and Spooner fans out there in Europe and in particularly in America. Um, it's sad, but it's a tribute to the popularity of, of the, the work these people produce that when things have come up for auction over the years, a lot of them have left the country, sadly, for us and gone to America. Um, and, you know, Orton and Spooner, arguably, you might say, might be better known over there than they are in their hometown, but we're trying to put that right now. <laughs> yes, desperately trying to put that right. Um, I... I, one of the pictures that really, really struck me was in the innovation uh, chapter. You've got a picture of a cockerel. <laughs> now I know that one of the one of the innovations they brought was was choosing different mounts because mm. before that it was very traditionally you know, they were horses, they were gallopers, mm. um, and that picture of that cockerel really brought to for me hard memories of as a child riding carousels and riding these cockerels and the horses and there is a certain look that is is that is that an alternate spooner look or um i think so um i would say so i think there is a quality of orton and spooner horses um, Spooner it was that did the carving. Orton was more the engineer and yeah. the, the the business brain, if you like, who who would assemble the stuff. Charles Spooner was the artist who would design and who would who would do the wood carving. And obviously, as they got more successful, trained people up and built a workforce that were carving. Um, but I think there is. I mean, there are there are other makers. Savages of Kings Lynn were were another maker, um, and. People who know far more about general fairground history than me could could reel off all these these other names, but but for me there is something very special about um, Orton and Spooner, and I'm I'm looking forward to a trip down to um, Dingle's Fairground Museum um, shortly down in Devon, where they have some Orton and Spooner rides that you can still um, ride. 
and Carter's Steam Fair that that used to come to Litchfield, who've now sadly sadly finished. They had a few examples of Orton and Spooner um, originals as well. Fantastic, and to, and to think that these these originals, you know, that they're, they're antiques mm. and they're still functioning. Yeah, yeah, because if they've been cared for properly they will stand the test of time because they were built so brilliantly. Um, but obviously, over the years, some of them um, have been out in all weathers. Um, the lady who bought, who who I mentioned earlier, who'd found a spooner horse at, with an antiques dealer, it was in a heck of a state because the people who'd acquired it in the 70s had turned it into a rocking horse. They'd carved off the pole and they'd made a bow and they'd stood the horse on the bow, but then they put it in the garden and they'd painted it grey and... Uh, She's now in the process, but she started to take the grey paint off and the original paint can still be seen underneath it. So it's a massive, massive restoration job um, that she's taken on. Um, But but definitely, again, another labour of love. And, And that's kind of how... That's how Orton and Spooner gets people, I think, you know, and, and people are prepared to put in this work if they can find something that's an original Spooner carving. They will put in the work to restore it and, and give it a new lease of life, and that's that's absolutely wonderful to see. Fantastic. And I I mean, I, I could go on and pick picture after picture after picture. I think for me as a child, I always used to love carousels and seeing a lot of these pictures really invokes those memories and makes me, you know, think back to my childhood. Um, and, you know, just go on the carousel and on the, at the statutes, mm. you know, which for, for us as Bertonians, the statutes is a big part of our identity. Um, and it, it has such an important story that I'm so grateful you've told. Thank you. Um, when... Doing the research then, what was it that you couldn't put in? Um, I think it was it was back to these avenues I didn't go down where I got a, a sniff of something in this direction, but it's like, well, no, I need to stay focused because I've got, I'm on target, I've got a plan, I've got to get this book out at a certain time to, to do what I want the book to do and to capture the interest that the... Um, Big Burton Carousel had had started because people again when when horses began appearing around the town last summer, you know, well, well, what's this about? What why horses? And 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 so I wanted to answer those questions, and to share some of this wonderful story with people. Um, then really. So is there is there one avenue in particular that you wish you'd you'd gone down? I guess. Um, I guess it would be nice to have done some more research on some of the wider family. I wasn't able, again, I really didn't have the time to follow that through um, with um, the children of Orton and Spooner. They are mentioned, some of them more than others. Again, it would have been nice to have followed that through. Um, I would have been, I would have loved to have followed up the stuff about the work they did with community theatre, with amateur theatres, and find out more. I would love to have found out more about Annie Orton. She is George Orton's younger daughter, and after George died, she continued to live at his house, which was then in Stretton, opposite the William Shrewsbury School. 
um, although that wasn't built then, but where the William Shrewsbury School is now. And she was, the word that kept cropping up about her everywhere was formidable. And I had tantalising snippets that she'd been a president of either a local football or a rugby club, that she had been a director of various businesses unrelated to Orton and Spooner. And I started having a little look at that. And then it was obviously going to take a lot more work than I could do. So I had to pull back. But Annie Orton is a person I would love to have found out a bit more about. She only died in the mid 60s. So again, there will be people in this town that will remember um, Miss Orton, um, Annie Orton. And, and again, it would have been lovely to have to have put some Uh, questions out there and found some of those people that had actually met her and could perhaps have filled in some of those details I think Annie's probably worth a book on her own at some point (laughs) and and you know that's something really you need to not hang around about because Mm. unfortunately Mm. as as happens with these stories is Mm. that if you hang around too long we lose those people that have the memories yes indeed um I, I I found, like I said, I've said that I found the story charming. Um, I'd like you to tell me a little bit and the listeners a little bit about what you've discovered with the war effort. Yes, so this came about, again, unexpectedly. Um, Charles Spooner's great-grandson um, told me about his father-in-law who had married um, Jack Spooner's daughter so jack spooner is charles spooner's son and jack spooner was heading up the company um as it went into as as world war ii broke out and jack spooner was an incredibly talented engineer and he had been he'd served in world war one he had learned everything there was to learn about the business Um, But his engineering skills were second to none. And he was also a great inventor. So he um, was asked by um, the government to get involved in the project to engineer the Mulberry Harbours for the D-Day landing. And he was given a special petrol allowance. And he basically spent the war travelling round dockyards um, and helping with with that side of the war effort, and uh, his little daughter Sybil often went with him, who was later to um, to become my contact's um, mother. And um, Jack also um, the work he was doing with prefabrication and how you could make these structures and then ship them to the coast and, and assemble them, also became used for. Um, if you like, heavyweight conveyor belts. So he devised heavyweight conveyor belts that were used at dockyards to move heavy heavy equipment around. Um, And that was adapted later and used by the post office for the the sort of conveyor belt systems that move large parcels around as well. So again, that was all innovation that came out of the, the war effort work that Jack Spooner was doing. Remarkable. Remarkable. And there are some really wonderful characters within this family, Jack amongst them. But can you tell me a little bit about Albert? Oh, so Albert Albert Howell um, is um, was a, a, an artist, one of the most celebrated artists for Orton and Spooner. So he was originally born in Bristol, 
and appears to have been headhunted by Orton and Spooner um, in the um, early 19, round about 1910, um, came up to live in Burton, moved his family up here, and one of his children was Sid Howell, who very early on he got involved in in helping him with some of these some of the work. Albert's big talent was large scale painting, which is much harder than it sounds. Again, if you look at those scenic railways, they had really huge, deep um, panels which were all hand painted. So Albert would be producing incredible jungle scenes with animals, which were probably two or three times life size. And and young Sid, even when he was um, only a, a young teenager himself, was sort of helping his dad. And these two worked. Albert and Sid Howell worked for Orton and Spooner um, for decades. Um, Albert was still working in the nineteen fifties. Um, Sid ended up being um, the head designer in the thirties. Um, and after working at Orton Spooner, Sid went off and did a few years at uh, Blackpool Illuminations designing some of their grand tableaus. Again, it was this ability to work at scale to envisage. And, and one of Albert and Sid's greatest achievements, which again can be seen down in Devon at Dingles, was um, a Ben-Hur scene that was done on a ride. And again, it's it's easy you can look at it and think that's a wonderful painting but it's thinking about it's painted on a curved surface and the perspective is spot on from whichever angle you look at it and that is such a rare talent because we might have all seen perhaps fun houses that have been painted sort of 2d and it doesn't quite look right the perspective's not right but this action-packed scene of a chariot racer and a man and horses and and it's so full of life and it's so spot on with the perspective and painted on this curved surface and just huge again many times life size it's just phenomenal work see one of the hazards i've had since doing this show elaine is is that i I often end up finishing a program with many more books to read than i start (laughs) but you've you've achieved a first here today elaine because now i've got somewhere to visit instead of somewhere to read something (laughs) to read so i am i'm gonna have to look out dingles and go down myself at some point um it's it's been a real pleasure talking to you um and your passion for this story for this book for this family is obvious now it is the Orton and Spooner story it does look at those two families but I'd just like to to come back to the Howell family mm. if, if we may before we finish because that was again then your first personal link in wasn't it it was it was yeah so what relation to Sid are your friends so, um, Sid's son was Alan, who is married to Paula, who is who is my friend. And Alan wrote a book about the Howell family and the artistry of Albert and Sid, because again, apart from the work they did for Orton and Spooner, they were painting for pleasure all the time. Um, Sid did some amazing photographs of wartime scenes and local scenes. So Alan had written a book about the Howells, which was the one I found out about in 2003 when we were doing Carousel. Um, And Alan had had spent a long time researching that book. Um, But then sadly, 
after completing the manuscript, he, he died suddenly and unexpectedly. And after a couple of years, it was Paula who, dis- who was able to see his vision through and get that book um, published. Um, so, yes, so Paula is, if you like, the daughter-in-law of Sid. Yeah. And if people want to read that book? You- so that's out of print now. Okay. It's called Men at Work, um, The Artists and Artisans of Orton and Spooner. Um, if you if you Google that, you might f- might find the odd copy, but it's um, it, it's few and far between. But but you might fi- you might be able to find a, a copy of it. But sadly, that's out of print, and and it was something we did look at to see if we could get that reprinted. But it was all sorts of problems. Yeah, with that, sadly. not not an easy mm. process. Well, thank you very very much for coming in. Uh, thank you for sharing the story with us. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you. Um, I, I can only echo what Elaine, uh, Elaine. I can only echo what Wendy said in her review. In that, the book is clearly lovingly written. Um, you know, it has been again the title, "The Labour of Love," that you've put into it, and what you've done is you've you've made sure that this story isn't lost. So thank you very much for that, because I think it's very important that these stories do get told. Definitely. Um, So, until next week, ladies and gents, I wish you all very good reading. This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton-on-Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say, Alexa, play Microbrew Radio. And if you like what you hear, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks. <laughs>